I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. With songs such as Sexy Borka, Put a Fatwa on It and I'm a Jew, British comedian David Badil accepts that some people mightn't see the funny side of his latest project, Infidel, the musical, a stage adaptation of his film about a man brought up as a Muslim who finds out he was born a Jew. Due to open at the Theatre Royal Stratford East in October, Infidel carries the message that groups at loggerheads can have more in common than they have differences. The music is composed by Aaron Baron Cohen, whose brother Sasha has offended quite a few people over the years. On Saturday, Pope Francis announced eight members of a new commission tasked with advising the pontiff on safeguarding children from sex abuse and working pastorally with abuse victims. Among the members are Boston Cardinal Sean O'Malley, one Italian professor, two priests and four laywomen, one of whom is activist, survivor of child abuse and regular contributor to this programme, Mary Collins. Congratulations, Mary. We wish you well in your work. Yesterday, US President Barack Obama met the Pope at the Vatican as part of his European trip. Wonderful to meet you, said the President. I'm a great admirer. Items on the agenda included the fight against poverty, growing inequality and, of course, the Ukraine situation. Pope Francis recently called for world leaders to come together to promote peace in that region. And still on the papal theme, ever since Jorge Bergoglio ascended to the throne of Peter to become Pope Francis, he's been calling Christians to a new level of maturity and responsibility in regard to their faith and has told priests to be shepherds with the smell of sheep so that people can see that the priest is not just concerned with his own congregation but is a fisher of men. Running with this papal exhortation, Veritas has published a new book of essays taking a considered look at the new demands being placed on priests. Edited by Eamon Conway, it's called quite simply Priesthood Today. And to review it, we're joined by teacher and biblical scholar Sean Gowan. Sean currently works as Faith Development Officer of the Lechela Schools Trust. He has lectured at the Milltown Institute of Philosophy and Theology and the Marino Institute and has published books on the Sunday readings and co-authored a religion textbook for secondary schools. Quite an impressive CV, Sean. You're welcome to the God Slot. Thank you very much. Who's this book aimed at? Well, in the introduction, um, Eamon Conway seems to make it clear that it's intended for priests and that the stated intention of the book is first and foremost to help priests deepen their own faith and hope in the love of Christ. But would it be of interest to lay people? Well, certainly I read it as a layman and uh, enjoyed it. I, I, I read theology. I like to engage with what's happening. And, of course, I have many priests who are friends of mine and, indeed, I know many of the people who have contributed to the book. So uh, I was very interested in it. The times are changing and... That's the shared context of all the articles, I would say, that they're all viewed from this perspective of change. And that change seen from two lenses. One is the Second Vatican Council. I know it's 50 years ago, but we're still talking about it as if it's today's news. And in one sense, it really is, and from a church point of view. And the other lens then, of course, is secularisation and the change in society. So change in church, change in society. How does that impact on, on priests in their daily 
living out of their ministry and their ordination. Well, the construction of the book, it's it's grouped under four headings, ministry in a time of change, spiritual and theological foundation, person and role and sign and sacrament. But there are key points then. Let's go through some of them in more detail. Well, the thing that struck me as I I looked, I read it uh, in sequence and in that first section, the ministry in a time of change, there's a really serious engagement there with the notion of contemporary culture. What does it mean to be in the culture we are in? That's a very important and difficult question. And I think Eamon Conway's opening uh, essay on that is very helpful because he he refers to just the complexity in which we find ourselves. Um, He refers to work of people like Charles Taylor, the philosopher, who has written the book, I suppose, on secularisation from a a faith perspective. And uh, he realises that priests need to engage with contemporary culture. It's not, should we? You have to. He has also an article there from Dermot McCarthy, who was former uh, Secretary General to the Office of the Taoiseach. So bringing it from, again, a state or secular perspective, but a very sympathetic article on the priest in contemporary culture. He talks about a loss of authority. Yes. And and that applies to the public sector as much as the church. And that's, again, part of the... Maybe it's a consequence of a type of individualism that we have, uh, the postmodern notion that what's local matters and what, what what's important is what matters to me. And that experience, my experience, determines everything. And that's a very different context, again, for a priest, above all, to be working in, because the model that we had pre-Vatican II, very clearly, very hierarchical, top-down, starting with God, and the authority was transferred and people listened you start undermining that, and some people would say, of course, blame the Second Vatican Council for doing that. The church in the modern world was, a, in many respects, a revolutionary document because they were saying, heretofore we've talked about the bark of Peter. You get on this ship if you want to go to heaven. Outside the church there is no salvation. That was an operative model. It gave priests then, their job was to help save people. You know, the sacraments were means of salvation. So automatically you had a place. You step back from that model and you talk about the church in the world, the church learning from the world, the world being even a place of grace outside the church, and suddenly everything's different. And people's sense then of personal authority grows. And then alongside it, the growth of secularisation, one thing, but the scandals. There's no doubt that the context in which we are working has been hugely influenced by scandal. And of course, priests have done great harm very small group, but they've done massive harm. That's part of our context as well then for the culture in which we work. That notion of authority has changed completely. Um, and, you know, that's dealt with. The, the Father Tom Dalzell writes a good article, a theological kind of perspective on, on authority and where the authority comes from. And he makes it very clear. It comes from the gospel. It's not about the institution. It's about uh, the authority of service modelled on Christ. And that has to be the starting point. So they're moving on then to a more collaborative ministry. It's kind of sad the collaborative approaches to ministry have been imposed on us because of the, the vocations crisis. It isn't something that we have been necessarily rushing out to do and recognising the merit of it because we are all the baptised, if you like, share in the priesthood of Christ. We have a common baptism, uh, a common priesthood. That should be the motivation, but in fact it has worked because we have a declining uh, numbers of priests, parish life is changing dramatically, therefore we must find ways to continue to minister to people. 
it's a serious challenge to priests because I think the training tends to be uh, the priest as uh, individual leader. I don't know to what extent, certainly recent seminary training would have involved an emphasis on working together. That's not something that comes automatically to people, especially people who are used to a very structured and hierarchical church uh, and taking, if you like, orders or obeying. Those are the, the kind of models we might have had before. We're not in a different context. Many of the lay people are, are, are better qualified theologically than uh, the priests. Many of them have master's degrees in theologies and pastoral ministry. They, they have a great deal to offer. Um, but for many of them, then there's a, a huge frustration because when you come to the table and sit around the table to try and plot change and, you know, pastoral council work or ministry in the parish or whatever, there's a tension around who's in charge here. And some of those questions aren't actually that well addressed in the book. I, I'm kind of, there's a lot of aspirational <coughs> lots things of going on. questions are raised, yes. but not too many answers. Yeah, there's a reticence about some of the writing. It's like they haven't felt free to engage. And maybe that's the problem of a format where you, you, you're just writing a short essay as part of, you know, 36, a uh, volume of 36 essays. That's, that's sad because there are very, I think, there are very good things going on in parishes, really good things and good questions are being asked and people are trying to model different, different uh, approaches. It would have been good to tap into that a bit more, the lived experience on the ground, what works with us, what doesn't, because the, the, the situations vary so much. You know, uh, the urban parish was very low attendance. The rural parish was a stronger sense of maybe community and those kinds of things. Very different situations. Um, the whole thing, too, of, of sacramental ministry around confirmation, First Holy Communion, the involvement of the school, the involvement of the parish, uh, preparation for marriage. Uh, there's there are a whole load of areas there where there's a growing or well, a, a need for greater collaboration and co-responsibility around how we are church. Uh, but how well are we tapping into them? Well, I don't think the book is addressing that, you know, sufficiently in a, in a kind of, this is what's happening on the ground. One area that is addressed and which is was of interest to me as a layperson is um, the qualities and strength needed in a priest himself and yes. how he needs to mind himself and his yes. own mental health and yes. get balance into his life. And yes. again, because of the drop in vocations and mm. the increased workload. Yes. And the challenge a, is greater. It's a, it's a good section. Again, there are, you know, interesting uh, pieces there. The opening one in that, um, Brendan O'Rourke, a uh, redemptorist priest, talking about personal maturity and mental health of a priest. That's a good piece. And it, it's clearly it's written out of experience and concern. Uh, and it's wise, you know. And he's, he's, uh, it would be one of the things that is, is suggested by Archbishop Eamon Martin at the, in the foreword to the book is that people would, uh, priests would come together and discuss chapters. That would be a very good chapter. I'd be very interested to sit in on a group of priests reflecting on what Brendan O'Rourke has to say about the importance of their own mental health. He uses the phrase at the start of the article, you know, article, he says, um, maybe we were taught in the past to be super independent. And of course, that's a recipe for disaster. And can uh, lead to isolation yes, very often. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's the word then that comes up when priests are struggling. They feel isolated and they don't know how, even how to talk to their fellow priests, never mind to have uh, good friends, lay people, lay women uh, who are a support to them and whom they can trust. So would you recommend it as a book to priests or to lay people? Oh, yeah, I would, because, I mean, the, the nature of a book like this is there's a lot in it. So you cast the net very wide and you're going to have a lot of things. So not every article will have equal appeal. But I would recommend it to priests because I think priests need to be talking to one another. 
uh, on some of these issues. And even to parish councils, it would be a good idea if parish council want to sit down and read some of these books, especially on collaborative ministry, or even, you know, supporting their priests, read Father Brandon O'Rourke's article. Uh, it would be good. I think there's a lot in it that, that could nourish. OK, Sean, thank you. The book is called Priesthood Today, Ministry in a Changing Church. It's published by Veritas and edited by Eamon Conway. Sean Gowan, thank you very much for taking us through it. Thank you. The Rastafari movement arose out of Jamaica in the 1930s following the coronation of Haile Selassie as King of Ethiopia in 1930 and nowadays has approximately one million members worldwide. Reggae music is very much associated with Rastafarians and devotee Mairead Mead from Cork sat down with Revelation Sound Systems Benji and World Bass Culture's Raz Tinney to discuss their religion. Rastafari, greetings to each and everyone. Uh, Rastafari is a, what we would say a liberty. It's a, a movement of people, a movement of people who are trying to focus on uh, the I, which is within, which is within everyone. And uh, we're hoping to see this uh, in our daily life throughout the, throughout the course of our life, uh, recognising that this I is in everyone all over creation. This is one of the main goals uh, for a rested person, really. To break down barriers, to experience the love that we all have within us. Who was Hail Selassie I? Uh, His Majesty was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the conquering line of the tribe of Judah. He was the Ethiopian's emperor who was crowned in 1930. Uh, For Rastafarians around the world, this held, held big significance because of his, not only because of his majesty's titles that he held in the coronation, but because he was uh, of the lineage of King Solomon. So he would have uh, descended from King David. And for Rastafarians around the world, uh, this was uh, the coming of a great king on earth. Well, Bob Marley was in, in initially a, a, a brilliant musician and a, a, a good writer. And during during the course of his life, he got into contact with Rastafari and Rastafari, Rastafari people, and he became and one of them also was his wife, for example, Rita Marley, um, was a Rastafari before before Bob himself, and then um, he got into contact with and he, he and he joined the movement, um, like like many of his time, you know he he made it really big into reggae music, and and therefore he, because that was his lifestyle, Rastafari was his lifestyle, he had he had an influence. And he made a lot of people become interested in Rastafari. So, um, yeah. All of the people uh, in his camp, they were all in tune with one type of um, lifestyle. They were all ate together, they lived together. So for Bob um, to be projected on like the worldwide stage, you could imagine out of Jamaica coming from the ghetto, he was one of the first people who would have been like what they'd say a superstar. You know, a lot of the rest that come together would be around the Bible. Mm-hmm. They play music. It would be singing the psalms, drumming, different things. This was part of uh, the all of the liberty, the early days grown nation. So Bob and all these younger brethren would have gone to these camps, gone to places, uh, read, reasoned with the Bible with different elders, 
uh, reggae music at the time was already going. You had like ska, you'd rock steady, mm. reggae was coming, but there was more and more influence coming from the Rasta scene. So you would imagine the, like in the mid to late 70s, it was at a height coming from Jamaica. Uh, the consciousness, all of the, even artists who, who may not have been um, Rasta were now all of a sudden coming out with conscious lyrics or they were being inspired by the Rastafarian brethren who were, you know, promoting basically from a situation of war they were in. Jamaica was uh, civil in a civil war at the time and all these concerts were happening. Um, it was even dangerous to probably be a performer there because the political parties would be pulling them to either side to try and use their songs, use different things for their campaigns. Um, mm-hmm. Dreadlocks is like uh, in number six in the Bible, number six, six. It's uh, the law of the Nazarene about uh, not taking a, a comb or a razor to your head. Mm. This is like um, for the Rastafarian brethren and sisters who take up the vow of the dreadlocks. First of all, uh, the one thing you'll notice, it, it's about f- trying to conquer vanity, mm. trying to conquer an idea of preset ideas you might have had about yourself. Uh, there's a, a liberty that goes with the Nazarene like uh, all the way for thousands and thousands mm. of years across boundaries, barriers, no matter what religion. Tradition, like, you know. Yeah, or what race you'll be. Yeah, Yeah, you'll find people with the dreadlocks. The use of the herb, and I would have to say it's not always smoked as well by a lot of Rastafarians. um, But we would say as well, straight from the off, there there are a lot more Rastafarians who now don't have any uh, connection with the marijuana in their day-to-day liberty. But for those who do, it would be a meditation. Like for... Uh, thousands of years people have used this herb mm-hmm. in a deep self-inquiry mm-hmm. in, uh, not I wouldn't say as a social drug it's never as a party thing or it's never yeah. as it's more of a sacrament these herbs are there for the use of man um, since before we've had time even recorded our history yeah. and in the rituals uh, herbs are offered not only just for smoking. I'd have to say that a lot of the ceremonies I've been to now, lots of herbs are offered into different types of fires, and so people would think it's all about the big spliff. Mm. Um, it's not. Every religion has rules or ceremony, and um, and there is there is also in Rastafari we have um, a principle that that we that we that we follow, and that is um, to to love nature is really important mm-hmm. for us, and and therefore a lot of Rastafari choose not to. Kill animals or or eat uh, eat animals or fish or anything that is dead. Basically, like love is the law. We're just there to spread the vibe, and all of us in Cork and around Ireland, we're doing as much as we can at the gigs to make sure that the gigs are uplifting for people, and that they, like Kenny said, go away with something positive. That report was from Mairead Mead. Mary T. Malone retired home to Ireland in 1997 after almost 40 years in Canada, where her teaching and research focused especially on patristic and early church teaching on the place of women in Christianity. That's still her speciality. And on Thursday next, April the 3rd, she'll speak at a one-day conference in Antarshuk, the Dominican Sisters Ecology Centre in Wicklow Town. Mary joins us by phone now. Mary, you're welcome to the Godslot. Thank you very much. From your point of view, what's the state of women in the church today? And are we talking just about the Roman Catholic Church or all Christian denominations? Uh, I think particularly I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church, but most of it is true 
for all denominations from a theological point of view. Uh, I think the church's anthropology of women or theology of women is really faulty and needs to be changed. Like it hasn't really changed for centuries. And then Pope Paul VI had to try, because life was changing, he had to try to come up with a theology of women. And then Pope John Paul II had to try to do it, and Pope Benedict did. But nobody has fully accepted those theologies. And anyway, they're theologies about women by men, if you know what I mean. And so Pope Francis, if he invites women uh, to be part of that new theology uh, and invites them to express who they are theologically before God, which would be an enormous change, and the first time that that has happened in 2,000 years, then I think he can, he can uh, make a great step forward. And what do you mean by that theology? Uh, what I mean is, well, the theology has been, uh, to put it in a kind of a mantra that the church used from the very beginning, that women were created second and sinned first. And the whole of human history saw women as inferior to men. And that prevailed in the Catholic Church right up until the 70s when, as I say, life for women was changing and the Vatican knew they had to come up with a different kind of theology of women. But it's very difficult to do that when you're a man because you don't have a woman's experience. And what I usually mean by the theology of women is the theology done by women through the past 2,000 years, which the church has completely ignored, including the theology of the four recent women doctors of the church, who are Hildegard of Bingen in 2012, uh, Therese of Lisieux in 1997, and Teresa of Avila and Catherine of Siena in 1970 by Pope Paul VI. Now again, coming to Pope Francis, he has spoken about the feminine genius and saying that the feminine genius is needed wherever we make important decisions. And we've well, just... you see, I, I don't know what femininity is, quite frankly, especially when it's articulated by a male celibate. Female is a theological word. Femininity to me is a cultural construct and also a religious construct attributed and prescribed to me to tell me what kind of a woman I ought to be. But the problem is not femininity, uh, whatever that is. I, I don't well, like the word, Well, if he had said actually. female genius, then would that make a difference? Female genius would make an enormous difference, but that would be very difficult for the church to say because femaleness has always been a problem, and femaleness has always been a problem related to God and God the Father because femaleness is supposed to be the phenomenon most removed from God. So the point I want to make is before Pope Francis, his hands are tied in a way, and before he can do anything, there has to be a huge recognition of what women themselves have done and said through 2,000 years, and to listen to their experience, it really can't be articulated by men anymore. Well, we've just been highlighting on this programme the fact that Mary Collins, an Irish woman, is on the new commission, an eight-person commission, to deal with child sexual abuse, and there are four women named yes, on that commission. I was delighted to hear that. Actually, the two... The two areas where Pope Francis has not done very well are the sexual abuse crisis and women. When he was waylaid on the plane from Rio, uh, so to speak, 
uh, he had to resort to the argument from authority about the ordination of women, and he said that door is closed. Mm -hmm. Now, I can understand that. He can't change that with his two immediate predecessors having been so strongly against ordination. So he has a huge job of work on his hands, and I think ordination actually is just a distraction from trying to find out and let women themselves articulate who they are theologically before God. Okay, well, it sounds like a very interesting conference and your contribution will be nothing if not provocative, I'm sure. Thank you, Mary, for joining us on The God Slot. Further information can be had on the website www.ecocenterwicklow.ie. We'll put that address on our own website. Mary, thank you for joining us on The God Slot. And that's our programme for this week. If you'd like to be in the audience for a Beyond Belief special on the afternoon of Thursday the 24th of April between half past one and five o'clock, commemorating the canonisation of Blessed Popes John Paul II and John XXIII, email beyondbelief at rte.ie and the God Slot on Friday, April the 25th, the final programme in this series, will also be devoted to that topic. Our phone number is 01-208-2039. The email address is godslot at rte.ie and you can write to us at the Godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. Until next Friday evening at the same time then, Gugudi Jishif. Mm-hmm.